While I was a seminary student uh, in the early 2000s, my classmates and I were encouraged to choose one particular figure, ideally a pastor, uh, either in the contemporary world or in church history. And for the first 10 years of our ministry, uh, study and invest in understanding that particular figure. Learn about how they approached ministry uh, in the church. What conflicts did they experience? How did they handle uh, those conflicts? What were their main ministry priorities? What theological distinctives did they hold to? Uh, How did they go about the preparation and the preaching of God's word? And we were encouraged to do this not in order to mimic or imitate their ministry or their approach, but to understand the lens through which they were operating so that that could serve as a kind of reference for our own service and our own ministry. Well, as we continue in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's letter to this church in Thessalonica, a church he helped to establish, we are given here a very helpful lens, a paradigm by which we come to understand how it is that Paul and his companions went about ministering. So it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, a helpful lens for ministry. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Rather, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Your witnesses and God also How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We are told, and remember from Acts uh, chapter 17, that it was during Paul's second missionary journey that he, along with Silas and Timothy, helped to plant and establish this congregation in this important city of Thessalonica. One of the distinctive features of this church is that it was founded amidst persecution, in the midst of affliction and suffering. So much so that Paul and his companions, after only weeks being there, As we recall from Acts 17, we're told Paul preached over the course of three Sabbath days, a few weeks, but perhaps their ministry there was a bit longer. Nevertheless, 
in short time, they fled as a result of the affliction and the persecution. And they went on in their journey next to Berea and then Athens and then Corinth. As they departed from Thessalonica, as time went on, Paul sends Timothy back to the church to exhort them, to encourage them in their faith, that Timothy also would report back to Paul regarding their ministry. Timothy returns, and the report was good. The report was encouraging, and it became in part the basis for which Paul then writes these letters. The report was good. We heard in the previous chapter about these believers, their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope, encouraging news, and that they had received the gospel in the midst of affliction. If you turn to chapter 3, verse 2, this is where Paul reminds them, saying, when we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy, our co-worker in the gospel, to establish and exhort you that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you know we are destined for this. So the church's life and ministry was good. There was a flourishing about it, but it's clearly a hard circumstance that they are in. And when things are good, but things are hard, what do we need? We need encouragement. We need motivation. We need continued fuel for the journey in pressing forward. I think it's a bit like running a race, a longer race, a 10K, half marathon, a full marathon. Along the way are aid stations where you can get some drinks, some fuel, some food to help you in the journey. And part of the reason Paul knew they needed encouragement is because likely, more than any New Testament letter, the time between Paul's ministry in that given city, in Thessalonica, to the point at which he writes to them was the shortest. Not a lot of time had passed when he had been there when the church was founded. So this is a young congregation, and they needed encouragement, and they needed guidance. And the form of this encouragement and guidance, how it takes shape in chapter 2, is Paul setting an example of what effective ministry looks like. So what we're considering here really are pillars that any church or any Christian could build their life and their service upon. Three legs of the stool, if you will, that can provide support in serving and living for the Lord. The first we see is that in ministry and service of the Lord, the center of it ought to be on the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Repeatedly, we see this emphasis in this passage. In verse 1 and 2, You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, with these words, Paul is accomplishing a few things. For one, he's driving home the fact that his ministry aim is not man-centered. It is Christ and gospel-centered. That's the core and substance of his ministry. That's the focus. Paul's not a motivational speaker uh, in which he, his personality, or his eloquence, or his own gifting becomes the attraction, becomes the center. No, this is about the gospel as the message. Not about the messengers, but the message itself. And so he says, just as we've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not with words of flattery, 
or deception. Additionally, Paul's reminding these Thessalonians and us where power and effectiveness in ministry comes from. It doesn't come from one's own abilities or one's eloquence of speech. The power is in the gospel itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes to them, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Or Paul in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And for Paul, the proof was in the pudding. Their lives reflected the gospel's power. So Paul didn't need to convince them so much as to simply remind them of what they had experienced, what they had received and embraced. So throughout this chapter, Paul uses reminder language. Six different times, in fact, he says, you yourselves know. You remember, brothers and sisters, you you already know this. The first instance of this draws our attention. It's in verse 1, where he says, you yourselves know, brothers, our coming to you was not in vain. In other words, you know the effect and the power that God and his gospel has had, and you know its effect was from God because receiving this gospel did not bring you any better social standing, in fact, only worse, and it did not bring you any safer life, only more risk. In fact, you know the power of this gospel because you received it despite the suffering and affliction brought upon you for doing so. We think of our brothers and sisters around the world Uh, in circumstances of true suffering, physically, persecution. And yet even in our own day and culture, we may be facing increasingly that challenging question, what's the worth of being a true Christian, of being a faithful Christian? What what is that worth to me? Uh, when, When we moved to New England, a fellow pastor in Connecticut said, here in New England, you receive no uh, cultural or social credit in being a believer. There's no no social, cultural benefit that you receive in professing faith in Christ. Maybe there is in particular parts of the country uh, where Christianity is more accepted. Maybe it communicates that you're a person of integrity or character because you profess to be a follower of Christ. Less and less so in New England, he was saying. The opposite may be true. You may be viewed as a threat, narrow-minded, sectarian, bigoted. Paul backs up the significance and power of the gospel by reminding them of what he was willing to suffer for it in verse 2. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, Yet we boldly proclaimed it to you amidst conflict. The gospel of God and of Christ was the hallmark, the substance of his ministry. This glorious news that 
The Christ had come to make God known, to reconcile people to God, that those who were once far off could be brought near through the blood of Christ. This gospel, this good news, that Christ might bear the sin and suffering of his people, that they would escape the very wrath of God, which we, he reminds them of in the last verse of chapter 1. This good news that through his resurrection, death has been swallowed up in victory. This good news that through Christ he has given us his spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit that bears good fruit in life. This good news that God is restoring and renewing all of his creation. How how glorious is this gospel. This past week was uh, here at church VBS, a very fruitful week. Each day was a blessing to see kids uh, gather together sing songs, grow in friendship, share in life and activities, learn of our great God. Well, on a couple of those days, later in the day, I made my way over to the YMCA. And there, too, are groups of kids gathered for various programs. Uh, They, too, were engaging in lessons and activities, relationships. And this is not to simply knock on the YMCA. I'm a member of the YMCA. But one massive difference exists. One is teaching the gospel. The other is teaching mere moralism. External morality, absent of God, absent of his gospel, absent of true life in Jesus Christ. This is what, in great part, distinguishes us as the people of God. This gospel of God. So Paul stresses the power and centrality of the gospel, but then he weaves into that the motivations of his and his companions' hearts in their ministry, in their service. Another important aspect of serving and living unto the Lord. Verse 4, he says, Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We never came with words of flattery. As you know, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people. Now, Paul is bringing us beneath the surface of what we see in our service, in our living unto the Lord, in our ministry. And that is the place of the heart, the motivations. What what is driving me in Christian living and in service unto the Lord? He's really bringing us to the why question. For what reason do I serve? For what reason do I follow after Christ? For what reason do I minister? And his words certainly reveal a great temptation among many pastors, Christian leaders, and every Christian who is seeking to serve the Lord. And that is the temptation to not only please man, but to seek the approval of man. To be loved by man. A godly man or a godly woman is not one who's just pouring out their heart in service and teaching and helping, but who's doing so because God is worthy. Kind of an audience of one in that way. He is worthy to serve, to glorify God. Many of us perhaps are aware of those initials, um, SDG, Sola Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And uh, the composer, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, would write at the bottom uh, of many of his compositions, 
those three letters. Sola Deo Gloria, a reminder. Uh, for whom I am serving. Obscured from our, our modern eyes are the social and economic implications of the way that Paul approached his ministry. He could have tailored his message. There were other preachers of other religious groups. So he could have tailored his message so he wouldn't be an affront to particular groups of people, the rich or the powerful, tailoring his message so that he could draw favoritism, more prestige for his message. Maybe a nice theater or hall could be built for him to do his teaching. But he and his companions did not alter their message because they desired to please God who tests our hearts, who examines our hearts, who knows our hearts. Now that's not to say we should not have an eye toward pleasing people. Paul says in Romans 15 too, each of us should please our neighbors for their good. 1 Corinthians 10.33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So the believer should be seeking to please man, to benefit his fellow man through love, yet not in order to be approved by man, or to alter one's message to appease man. Ultimately, seeking to please God leads to pursuing the blessing of others. Why was Paul and Silas and Timothy, in seeking to please God, going to such an extent to benefit this church? Wasn't there an easier path that could have still been pleasing to God? Well, I think verse 4 gives us the answer. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. They had been approved. And they had been entrusted with this gospel. That word approved there in the text means tested. It's like a metal or a coin tested before it's approved. The language is in order to approve. Before it's approved, it's tested. And they were tested in many ways. Suffering, shamefully treated at Philippi, yet pressing forward. Tested and approved. And then being approved, they were entrusted with the greatest treasure, the gospel. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, I will not humble myself to become a king. He said that because he had the most treasured possession, the gospel itself. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, Paul says to Timothy that with the gospel of God... He says, I have been entrusted. And then he says, I thank Christ who has strengthened me and judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. The point here is that God was not out there looking for faithful servants and he discovered Paul. He became approved and entrusted because of the work God performed and had in Paul's life. He sovereignly called Paul, he sanctified and tested Paul, and then he trusted in his own work, God's own work, in the life of Paul. St. Augustine said, God does not call a person who is worthy, but by the act of choosing him, he makes him worthy. For whatever you have been chosen, 
wherever God calls you to serve, whatever your context is, he is the one who makes you worthy and able for that. So we see the substance of Paul's uh, ministry centered on the gospel of God. We see his motivations. And then finally, we see the character of his ministry. It is people-focused. It's people-focused. He says in verse 7, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our own selves, our own lives. And then verse 11, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a worthy manner. Paul was a passionate man as a Pharisee, as a Judaizer, and he maintained that passion when he was converted to Jesus Christ. But his passion for the kingdom did not lead him to ride roughshod over people. And Paul gives them, and he gives us a parental metaphor here, like a nursing mother caring for her children. That is a picture of someone selfless, devoted toward others. You've probably noticed this, but in in life, the people around us don't always act or think the way we would desire, right? But like the Lord Jesus, Paul, he took an attitude of a servant, gentle toward them, not lording over them. I remember years ago, uh, sitting down at a coffee shop, which, which is not unusual for me, with my Bible open, and an older gentleman sat across from the table. He had uh, the paper open and some other books. He saw my Bible was open, and before too long, we were engaged in in theological and religious conversation. He was clearly uh, interested. He was versed in religious matters, but it was very clear uh, by his own testimony he was not a Christian. As time went on, an issue surfaced, I remember, where we had clear disagreement. Now, As time went on, the conversation is getting a little bit more lively. And uh, to the point where I notice other people in my peripheral are starting to to pay attention. That kind of elevation. The minutes are passing. The conversation is really starting to turn into conflict. And I could tell, it was an older gentleman, that he was starting to get worn out. I could see on his countenance, his his facial expression, he was kind of getting worn out. And he finally stopped... He looked at me and he said, wow, you are inflexible. (laughs) That was not a compliment. (laughs) That was not a compliment. I I wore him out. I just wore him out. And, And I realized that while passionate about the point, I completely lost concern. It's not that the point, perhaps, wasn't important. I completely lost concern, gentleness, and love for this man. Completely. That happens. I had to repent. Saw a little bit of the inside. Sometimes we're very passionate about something, to the point that the person doesn't matter anymore. My point matters. And that's a tough balance, but we see that in Paul. We're gentle. We're, we're, we're flexing. But it's not that Paul was soft. He says, like a father, we we exhorted you, we encouraged you, and we charged you to live worthy of your calling. 
But he knew that it was sincere love for another that would have true effect. Love through gentleness, love through exhortation. That is the love of Jesus Christ for his people. Charging, exhorting, but gentle. Jesus Christ, he came with grace, with mercy, but in truth. Jesus is the one who says to us, come to me, for I am gentle. I am humble. And he is the one who says, come to me. I'm the truth. I am the way. I'm the life. Let's pray together. Lord, how we give you praise for who you are, uh, how your word points to uh, the word incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your gentleness and mercy and compassion toward us as your people, and yet the truth that you make known to us about who you are and where uh, life is had. We pray that you would continue to shape us, Lord, in our own service, in our own worship of you, Lord, in each of our uh, lots in life and each of our uh, particular callings you've placed upon us, uh, would you form us in the likeness of Christ um, and that you would fill us with joy um, as you do that work in us. And we pray all these things with thanks, O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.